Goes to Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Abraham Reisman. Uh, Abraham is a Providence-based journalist writing primarily for New York Magazine about arts and culture, and most importantly for the purposes of this show, uh, the author of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. Uh, I'm very excited to have uh, Abraham on the show today because I am, uh, I'm a big fan of his book, which... Uh, brought back a lot of fond memories for me uh, as a as a kid growing up in the 1990s, spending a lot of time reading Wizard Magazine, uh, the comic book journal of the era, and spending a lot of time on AOL message boards arguing about comics. Um, uh, Stanley was often a, a topic of conversation in these in these corners because uh, this is this is uh, you know in the in the 80s and 90s there was a lot of kind of pushback on the idea of Stanley as the sole creator and originator of so many of the classic Marvel heroes we now know and love, uh, primarily from the big screen for, for most of us, uh, Spider-Man and, and the Fantastic Four and Iron Man and all those guys. Um, Abraham has written the, I think, what, it, what will be known as the definitive uh, pro-Jack Kirby, anti-Stanley book on this. And and I, I don't want to pigeonhole him. I'll let him talk about it, this a bit more. But um uh, what was what was your what was your kind of impetus for getting getting into this book? Um, well, it was a little bit of an accident. Uh, I I did not seek this; it sought me to a certain extent. Short version: uh, In 2015, I was a staffer at New York Magazine and had been writing about the comic book industry uh, for a few years there. And an editor, David Wallace Wells, walked up to my desk with a galley copy of Stan's 2015 graphic memoir, Amazing, Fantastic, Incredible, which was about to come out. Slapped down on my desk and said, you should do something with this. So I got to go, got right into it, started looking for, for sources to speak to, tried to get an interview with Stan, started doing research. About a week in, I go to talk to David, Nice, you know, I'm planning to tell him everything that I've turned up so far. I got about 30 seconds into my spiel before he stops me and goes, oh, I meant you should write a short review. <laughs> like, that, that. this was not the plan. Uh, but to his credit, he let me talk and then said, you know, it sounds like there's some interesting stuff here, so see if you can find something. No guarantees. And, um, you know, I proceeded to do research, and it turned into a profile that ran in February of 2016. Um, and the profile got a fair amount of attention uh, in no small part because it turned out to be sort of the first mainstream article to really um, spend a lot of time trying to suss out stuff about the creative origins of the Marvel Universe characters. Not the only one, but it was it was the first one. That, I mean, it was about 10,000 words, so it was, mm -hmm. it was a, a hefty piece that had some, you know, gorgeous artwork and everything, so it had, had eyes on it, and, um, you know, I didn't realize, since I'd only been reporting on the comics industry for a few years, I didn't realize how uncommon that was. It, it just didn't occur to me that people hadn't, because like you say, I, I'd been aware of the controversies from within the comics world mm -hmm. for a long time, um, but... I just hadn't thought about the fact that it hadn't really been expressed to a mainstream audience in that kind of way. So anyway, um, it did pretty well, uh, but then I you know, moved on with my career, did other things, uh, tracked Stan lightly, uh, and uh, especially in the last year and a half of his life when some really awful stuff happened and it was all over the tabloids and not just the tabloids, And uh, but I wasn't writing about it. And then Stan passed away in November of 2018, and uh, an editor at Penguin Random House, their crown imprint, Will Wolfslough, uh, wanted to do a biography, which is, you know, it's slightly morbid, but when a notable person passes away, 
there's often an effort to try and have the first sort of posthumous biography, the, com the complete story. So uh, Will had remembered the profile that I wrote and uh, approached my agent, who then talked to me about it. I almost said no because I was trying to transition out of writing about the comic book industry as much um, and try other things. But uh, it's kind of hard to say no to an offer like that. So um, I went ahead and did it. So that's all a long way of saying uh, you know, initially it was a misunderstanding that led me to it. And then it was somebody else coming to me. So it wasn't quite like this was my yeah. lifelong dream to write this article and then write this book. But um, that is how it worked out. And I'm I'm glad it did. Yeah. I, I, and it, it really is uh, exhaustively researched. I want to talk to you a little bit about the sources uh, in sure. a minute here. But the the uh, let's let's set the stage for the average uh, non-comic uh, obsessed uh, mm. person who was listening to the show. I know there's a few out there, um, <laughs> but the you, you know, like I said, there 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 has been a kind of long-running debate about how much credit Stanley really deserves, as opposed to Jack Kirby, who uh, created Fantastic Four and and other uh, you know Silver Age Marvel superheroes, or Steve Ditko, you know, uh, with Spider-Man and 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 all that. So, uh, give us give us the background here. What is the what is the crux of this argument? Uh, in a nutshell, I would hasten to say, I, I, you know, you you say that the book is the definitive pro Kirby anti Lee, mm -hmm. uh, you know, document, and I appreciate the use of the word definitive. I would <laughs> say though, I I don't come down on saying I can absolutely prove, you sure. know, it was all Jack. Um, and, you know, the nature of collaboration is complicated, so it may well have been something kind of in the middle. But, um, you know, part of the lesson of the book, I think, is ideally, is that you sort of have to sit with ambiguity. Now, obviously, there's a lot of sort of circumstantial evidence that when you really dig into it, suggests that Kirby at least had a much bigger role than Stan led on and perhaps really was in the case of some or all of these characters, really sort of the, the progenitor, um, you know, which was Stan's own definition. Um, you know, Stan, mm -hmm. Stan's definition of who is the creator of something by his own words uh, many times over was whoever had the initial idea for a thing, uh, for the character, even beyond, you know, even before rather it becomes fleshed out um, or becomes, uh, you know, is drawn. I mean, Sam wasn't an artist, so he wasn't coming up with any of the visuals. Even before all of that, uh, according to Stan, the creator is the person who has the initial spark. So that's sort of the question that is in play. Um, who is the person from whose mind uh, these characters that are now worth, you know, billions and billions of dollars um, sprung? You know, who who was that person? And I don't think we can just sort of conclusively say it was anybody, but I, mm -hmm. I do think that, as you point out, once you put the evidence together, even if it's not necessarily, um, you know, conclusively that Jack did the stuff, uh, it's it certainly casts a lot of skeptical light on what Stan said about the creation of these characters. There's a lot of contradictions and shifting stories and things that are extremely implausible in these these setups. And you combine that with the fact that like throughout his life and career, Stan lied or, you know, misdirected or exaggerated or downplayed a lot of things, uh, you know, stuff that you can actually prove that he was being, you know, he's dissembling mm -hmm. on. So anyway, the, the point is, and I've gotten into this a little bit with my little opening part here is, you know, the controversy is about who is responsible for this stuff that is now worth a lot and means a lot to a lot of people. For decades, 
the accepted narrative has been that of Stan Lee. Uh, he was a very charismatic raconteur. He was great with journalists. He was a lot of fun to be around. And so he really was able to express this version where he is the progenitor of all these characters in print and in interviews and so on and so forth um, that stuck. And what I found when I was doing the research was, uh, you know, whatever you think about the positive conclusions, the negative conclusion, is, uh, you know, well, by one definition of that word, the negative conclusion is there's literally no evidence that Stan created these characters. There's none. Mm -hmm. There's no presentation boards. There's no diary entries. There's no accounts from, you know, unbiased third parties from the, you know, contemporaneous whatever. Um, and that is hard to swallow because it means that the, even, you know, I can't say for certain that all of it was lies, but it's pretty astounding that there's just no evidence backing up this thing that we've all just taken as gospel. Mm -hmm. And um, I tried to bring as much evidence to that uh, controversy as you can um, without getting too bogged down and, and losing all sense of the larger story. Because I, I should caution people to understand that this book is a full chronicle of Stan's life. The question yeah. of who created the Marvel Universe is really is one chapter, an incredibly important chapter, but it's only one chapter in this larger story. Yeah. Uh, well, let's... let's... Let's come back to this in a second. Let's talk about the life of Stan Lee because I mean it is it is kind of a I mean he lived he lived almost he was almost, almost a century yeah almost a century he lived you know throughout the meat of the American century the so called mm -hmm. American century uh, and he he is uh, you know he he was a, a key player or I don't know about a key player but he was certainly a player in lots of different aspects of it I mean mm -hmm. I sure. let's let's talk a little bit about you know, his early life in publishing, his work in World War II, the, you know, the, sure. the kind of famous people he was working with, that sort of stuff. Yeah, so I'll try to be brief. You know, he's born in 1922 to Romanian Jewish immigrants who are living in New York City. He was born in the Upper West Side, then was in Washington Heights, then in the Bronx. Um, and at a very young age, uh, you know, in 1939, 1940, he goes to work for, after he's graduated high school, he goes to work for uh, his cousin-in-law's publishing company. His cousin-in-law was a guy named Martin Goodman. Uh, the connection there was not so much the cousin-in-law as his Stan's uncle, who also worked at that company, uh, working for Martin Goodman. And, you know, it's this classic sort of nepotistic, um, you know, uh, immigrant business kind of uh, situation where Stan didn't really have any particular qualifications, but he started out as a gopher working for, um, especially doing stuff for Jack Kirby when Jack was a few years older and had already been at the publishing company. And Joe Simon, Jack's partner, who was the editor-in-chief, although senior editor, whatever, he didn't call himself mm -hmm. editor-in-chief, yeah, but right. that's being pedantic. Yeah. Um, you know, Stan uh, starts there. And then Kirby and Simon get fired for reasons that may have had to do with Stan ratting them out on something, unclear. Jack thought it was Stan, and that was sort of one of the beginnings of his frustration with Stan. Uh, and Stan becomes editor-in-chief. And he holds that position until from you know 1941 until 1971. It's a long stretch. But mm -hmm. throughout most of that, he's not really altering the course of anything. He's not... Um, you know, that's not a diss. That's how most people live their lives. He just sure. had this job at this publishing company um, where he was in charge of the comics line. And comics, you know, the, the American comic book is only in, invented in like 1932, 33. So it's a pretty young medium. Um, and most of the people working in it 
you know, all of them because of the virtue of age, they they did not grow up wanting to be comic book creators because there was no mm-hmm. such thing. So there was a lot of shame associated with it, um, or at least condescension from other people. Uh, and that especially became even more true in the 1950s when there was a late 40s into the 50s that uh, when there was this crusade against comics as being sources of juvenile delinquency, delinquency and homosexuality and all of these uh, things that were causing this moral panic. Um, and so Stan did a lot, uh, both for, for various reasons, Stan tried to get out of the comics industry a lot, um, throughout his career. Um, pretty much it's a constant refrain that he didn't want to be making comics and especially superhero comics. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, he, he, uh, tried to start a textbook company. He tried to be a newspaper cartoon strip writer, which was weirdly a completely different social class and had a completely different reputation as a profession. Mm-hmm. Tried to write in advertising, TV, movies, whatever. He did, as I should mention, it, it, he did serve in the military, although he didn't serve overseas. He was in the so-called playwrights division, which only had about nine people in it. Um, and some of them were like William Saroyan and, you know, um, Dr. Seuss, yeah. uh, a lot of big names. And for whatever reason, Stan was also included in that, even though he was not a big name and did not really meet a lot of the qualifications. Side note, that's where you get into the conspiracy theories, which are that Stan was like an asset being cultivated by the CIA in order to <laughs> affect, uh, you know, um, American thoughts about uh, communism and, and war and whatever. But be that as it may, he, for the most part, um, during the war was doing internal propaganda, as far as we know relatively benign internal and propaganda where it was like training films and telling people not to get venereal disease and all of that. But anyway, after the war, yeah, he spent decades trying to break or, you know, decade and a half trying to break yeah. out. And uh, then, you know, in 1961, under circumstances that are unclear, as we said, um, creative circumstances, at least, uh, this comic comes out called The Fantastic Four. And it's the first issue comes out in 1961. And uh, we don't know exactly the creative process that went into it, but uh, the credited creators of it were Stan and Jack. And it was this massive success. And that was followed by, you know, it was sometimes a bumpy road, but for the most part, for the next few years, Marvel was on this incredible, uh, sorry, they, it was initially called Timely and Atlas had various other names, right. the comics publishing arm, but it then became known as Marvel uh, in around 1962. And uh, the Marvel Revolution changes everything, not just for Stan, but kind of for popular culture in general. Um, I mean, that's it's just it's hard to hold in your mind just how big these characters have become. Uh, And at the time, they were, you know, still at this sort of rinky dink comics industry where people were not really paying much attention and where there were not clear laws about work for hire and nobody was keeping extensive documentation of anything mm-hmm. because it just, that wasn't that kind of industry. It was very fly by yeah. night. People did not, anyway, sorry, I, I, I could keep talking all day. No, but. no, 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 this is great. I, I just, I wanna interject here just Please. for a second. Can you can you talk a little bit about the Marvel method? Uh, sure, Because I yeah. think that, so, that's, that's the key that's thing the key to understand. Thing, and it's kind of hard to understand, but I'll do my best. So uh, these comics that Stan was making uh, in the 60s, and I found evidence of the seeds of this going back all the way to the 40s, but really it crystallized in the late 50s and into the 60s. You have this thing that comes to be known as the Marvel method. And um, basically you'd expect when you're reading a comic, especially given the credits where they say written by Stan Lee or script by Stan Lee, 
you'd expect that he was writing a script, you know, the same way that you would for a film or a television show where he sits down and he goes, this is what should be happening in this panel. Uh, this is what should be happening in this one. This is what the characters are saying. This is vaguely what it looks like. And then he would hand it off. This is the what you might assume that he would then mm-hmm. hand it off to an artist who would then flesh out what he had put there. That was not how it was actually working. What was happening was uh, there would be some kind of conversation uh, between Stan and his writer artist um, for that given issue. And then, and that conversation, those were not conversations that, as far as we know, have surviving recordings or notes. Um, so they were different every time by everybody's admission. You know, sometimes it was more of a dialogue. Other times it was more of a, I mean, this is what we hear, that more more of a one-way dialogue where it's, you know, Jack perhaps saying to Stan, like, here's what I'm going to do. And when I say, here's what I'm going to do, the reason he's able to say that is because the next step is not Stan writing a script after this conversation. It's the uh, the artist, the writer artist, going home. They were almost all they were all freelancers, you know, going home and actually coming up with the plot. Mm-hmm. You know, these conversations, the plot conversations, um, even by Stan's own admission, a lot of times were just the artist taking the lead um, and saying this is what we should do. And also by Stan's own admission, very often they were. Even if he was participating, he had the vaguest of ideas. It'd be like, we should have Dr. Doom come back to this, uh, back in this issue, or we, we should have Spidey run into this situation and this issue. And then the artist would go and actually construct that story and uh, draw it. And it would, you know, oftentimes there would be little notes in the marginalia about dialogue suggestions. You know, it, it basically adds up to the writer artist really being the primary writer on these things, or at least doing mm-hmm. the first pass of the of the actual finished thing. And then uh, once the art was back, uh, you know, had been had been completed, or at least this first pass was handed back to Stan, and Stan would then write the dialogue and narration. So he was definitely, and the credits, and the letters mm-hmm. pages. So he was definitely right. participating in these comics. But the question is, how much was the sort of creative direction actually him and how much of it was these writer artists who were doing the first and I would argue primary pass on these things on, on these issues and you know it, it gets it's very sticky because there was again there was not documentation of of any of this that has survived so um, uh, you end up with this this ambiguous situation that is frustrating for people because the human mind mm-hmm. doesn't want to accept ambiguity. Right. Um, but we, we just don't know on any given issue exactly how much was Stan versus the writer-artist. Right. And uh, let, let's skip ahead a bit because this actually has huge financial ramifications. Sure. Uh, at, at some point down the line. And this is this is one area I, I still am not super versed in. So if you could if you could talk about this just a little bit, you know, the, mm-hmm. the fights between the Kirby estate and Stan Lee and, and yeah. kind of how that all so, shook out with. Sure. Marvel. So um, in the 80s, you start going all the way back to the late 60s. You have sort of more obscure interviews and comments from Kirby in which he is claiming that he was the progenitor of all these Marvel characters. But that doesn't really kick into high gear until the 80s when Jack is involved in this fight with Marvel where he's trying to get his original art back because the Mm -hmm. original art is, you know, all of a sudden there's this market for it. There had not been in the 60s. And, you know, Jack was not a super wealthy man and could really use the money. So uh, there was controversy then where Jack started 
started doing interviews in much bigger outlets. They were still mostly within the the comics world, um, but you know, outside of fanzines, he would start talking about how he was the creator of this stuff and would get into some degree of detail. Now, I, side note. A lot of these stories have holes in them that I don't necessarily, I can't necessarily attribute to lying, although it may have been that, but these were stories about create, it may have been misremembering or it was so long before, right. but these stories were starting to get out in the open and people were, were, um, were thinking about them. And then Jack dies in 1994 and uh, years later um, when Marvel is making movies and really blowing up, um, the Kirby estate uh, it's a weird, complicated legal thing because it was not exactly them suing that Marvel. It was them canceling a copyright they claimed to have. But the short version is there was this legal battle over whether Jack was the progenitor of these comics, uh, or rather these characters, and um, whether uh, the work for hire laws that were not really clear in America until about 1978 um, whether they held that actually Jack was the you know legal owner, if he was the progenitor, whether he was the legal owner of this IP, mm-hmm. and intellectual property, sorry, I should say. And, um, you know, that ends up being a case that goes ju- to the door of the Supreme Court. In 2014, I believe it was, sometimes I'm bad with dates, but around 2014, um, it almost goes to the Supreme Court. It's one step away. And instead, Marvel and its then owner, you know, well, current owner, but, you know, relatively new owner, Disney, uh, yeah. settles with the Kirby estate for an untold but surely un- a huge sum, um, mm-hmm. especially because it-, it was looking somewhat promising for that case. And there are huge r- ramifications, and not just for Disney and Marvel. If right. you have a world where the Supreme Court sets a precedent that – stuff that was done under ostensible work for hire, which meant, you know, what you were creating was not owned by you, but rather by the company you were producing it for, excuse me. Um, If there had been a precedent set throughout the country and the the entertainment industry that work for hire was something that was not super ironclad before 78, um, all of a sudden every franchise would be completely blown up because the people who actually invented these characters would suddenly own them and no longer would these giant corporations be able to just sort of do whatever they want with them, uh, the characters that is, Mm -hmm. and ignore the wishes of the creators and kind of own the whole kit and caboodle in one combined universe, all of that stuff. So, you know, they settled, but it's still a massively consequential question. And if it had gone a different way, we'd be looking at a very different entertainment landscape. Yeah, yeah. Uh, There was one thing that you mentioned earlier, uh, the 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 kind of and this is a running theme in your book and it's very interesting the the kind of shame and condescension uh, associated with working in the comic book industry you know like Stanley would throw these these parties on, on Long Island and you know people would come over and and it would be written up in the society pages but nobody would say like comic, comic book, book writer, writer. Stan Lee. was always it citing was... other things he did which were yeah. ultimately really insignificant in the grand scheme of things and the comics which would later turn out to be his a bread and butter and B, you know, the most important stuff that he signed his name to, he just wasn't talking about it. And like I said, part of that was the lasting, you know, shame of the national shame associated mm-hmm. with comic books and, you know, the, the effects of the moral panic. But also Stan just didn't have any particular love of comics or superheroes. I mean, that's something that once you start looking at the historical record, 
becomes overwhelmingly clear throughout mm-hmm. his life. He's constantly trying to escape from superhero comics and uh, saying things. I mean, that's the action. And then the words are, you know, you have recordings and, you know, interviews where he just sort of throws the whole industry under the bus and says, I wish I could be making movies or making TV. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, in 1980, he ships off to Los Angeles uh, to start working on that. I mean, he'd been doing little bits of it in the 70s, commuting back and forth. But when he moved to L.A., then it really was his full-time gig was trying to get movies and TV shows based on Marvel made. And not just ones based on Marvel. He was also working on his own side projects for movies and Mm -hmm. television and trying to get them made. And none of them were, I mean, I shouldn't say none of them because the Marvel ones were obviously about superheroes, but the stuff he was doing on his own was not really superhero stuff. He really just didn't have any particular uh, attachment to that medium or that genre. And, um, you know, I, all of a sudden I can't remember what the question was. But well, no, I. But I, I, so one thing, one thing again that jumps out is 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 Stanley's shame, and then he, you know, uh, in in the mid to late '60s and and beyond, we start getting this kind of more intellectualized idea of comic books, right? Like sure. he's going to college campuses, he's talking to college kids, he's mm-hmm. getting profiles in Rolling, Rolling Stone, Stone and, yeah. and other you know kind of new journalism outlets, right? And it's creating this sort of cachet that didn't exist. And I think, I, like, I, I wrote about this in the Washington Post. I think this is, like, this is what Stanley's actual innovation was, hmm. is creating this kind of idea of comic books as something to be taken slightly more seriously. Sure. Or at the very least, creating this sense of community and fandom. Um, and, 100%. And I was, hoping, I was hoping you might be able to talk a little bit about how he did that within the world of comic books and then afterwards, just as like the idea, the character of the Stan character Lee. The character of Stan Lee, yeah. I mean, he was astoundingly good at creating community and generating enthusiasm for the work that he was credited for and for its its offshoots at Marvel. I mean, that was that's incontrovertible. His his ability as a salesman is it was tremendous. And part of that was um the the character of Stan Lee that started to emerge first in text and then later in film and in real life appearances. Um, and that character was developed gradually. What, one thing that was interesting looking at the course of his life for this book was what we think of as the finished version, you know, the final form of Stan Lee with the mustache and the sunglasses and the sweater, um, you know, and the toupee, that was not necessarily who he was presenting himself as as of the 60s. But mm-hmm. eventually he started to, bit by bit, turn into what we think of as Stan Lee. And a key component of that was his letters pages in the comics. Um, you know, I would argue that that's really, in many ways, the crux of Marvel's success is, is not just the... Um, you, you, I shouldn't say the crux, but a crux of his of Marvel's success is beyond the content in the stories. People loved the letters pages. I mean, I interviewed mm-hmm. uh, a, you know countless boomers who uh, loved Stan in the '60s and loved Marvel in the '60s, and I would ask them, you know, what kept you coming back. And I would say uh, certainly a plurality of answers, if not even maybe even a majority, was I, I love the stories, but I even more so I love the, the letters pages. Because in the letters pages, you had him direct – you had him doing a few things. One was he would have these little bits of pontification where he would sort of you know talk up Marvel and, like you say, sort of give people a sense that it, it's special and, and intellectual, et cetera. 
and he would have previews where he would write up, you know, little sentences about what the next issues of Marvel Comics were going to be like, and he was really good at drumming up enthusiasm. But the big thing was his interactions with fans through the letters. He would respond to them in these witty, fun, charming ways that took the readers seriously. And the readers were young. He was not. Like I said, he was born in 22. So by the time the Fantastic Four is, you know, is created, he's like 38. And, you know, Mm -hmm. he's writing these letters pages in his 40s. And yet um, his connection with young people was was just tremendous. He he was able to speak to them in a way that they understood and responded to. And then as time went on, that voice that was in those letters pages started to be more in his like actual voice when he would speak and do things. Um, You know, you go back to the 60s, like I said, and you'll find recordings of him. Uh, and he sounds very staid and, and reserved and intellectual. Mm-hmm. And then as the decades went on, he, for various reasons, started developing more into this rollicking, uh, hey, how you doing, uh, exciting raconteur. Um, and, you know, that that character proved to be extremely important for Marvel because Marvel wanted to have uh, a face as any corporation that is trying to connect with people on an emotional level wants a face. And he was a good company man, as opposed to, say, Jack Kirby, who was a freelancer who had a tremendous amount of resentment for Marvel. If Marvel Mm -hmm. could present this idea that there was one guy who was responsible for everything and he was fun and avuncular and he loved you and you loved him, that's a huge part of the success of Marvel. Um, and it lasts to this day. I mean, I, I find that as I have promoted this book, um, one of the big pushbacks I get is the subheading of the title. Because people very often when they're pushing back have not read the book yet. And, and for a while they couldn't because it wasn't even out. But they would still get mm-hmm. mad and say, rise and fall. Well, he never fell. How dare you? And what's interesting to me about that is – you know, even beyond my arguments about his his decline beginning, you know, his sort of emotional and career decline beginning uh, decades ago, at the very least, the last year and a half of his life was a complete nightmare, and everybody could have known about that. His yeah. The elder abuse that was happening in the last year and a half of his life after the death of his wife um, was so public and so just awful, and yet you have these super fans who are popping into the comments to say he never fell. There was no fall. And what I take that to mean is, uh, you know, there there was no fall for the character of Stan Lee. The character of Stan Lee went out on a high note. The character of Stan Lee gets a touching tribute in Into the Spider-Verse a month after he dies. And so, you know, that character is what people are attached to. The, the real-life Stan Lee, people have virtually no knowledge of. You know, it's... Yeah. It, it's he was everyone knew Stan Lee, but nobody knew Stan Lee. Yeah. I mean, this is this is, uh, you know, one of the kind of striking things reading this book, the last 20 years or so of his life, really, I think mm-hmm. you can is fair to say um, with the the, you know, the dot com boom creating this massive enterprise of Stan yeah, Lee Stan media, Lee media that, yeah. that crashes, you know, horribly burns out like like so many other dot com yeah. uh, entities. And then POW Entertainment was POW that Entertainment the, was the, the second post Marvel company, which still exists as a, right. a subsidiary of a Chinese conglomerate. 
And and, you know, mixed with these two kind of enormous failures uh, that that essentially just use the idea of Stanley to generate revenue and investments. You have Stanley making the cameos in the MCU movies, sure. making the cameos in the X-Men movies and the, the Raimi Spider-Man movies. And and it, it, it's it's weird to think of those two things existing at the same time mm -hmm. because they are. It, it, I, you know, the way the way I kind of think about it is he is he's trapped in a prison of his own making. He is he's got this I, the idea of Stanley, and that's how he makes his money going. You know, to to the conventions and stuff. But but let's let's talk a little bit about the last twenty years because I do think the fall is important here. I, sure. I think I think people need to understand what happened to him creatively and and financially with these last couple of companies and and obviously the elder abuse stuff was you know kind of horrifying yeah i mean the last you know from 1998 until 2018 when he dies um it's this real parade of failures except for the cameos and the cameos are the most public thing so people focus on them and think it was success after success but you know the cameos he was getting paid scale for he was not actually making money on that in any meaningful sense and he had an executive producer credit on these movies but it was purely ceremonial uh he at one time was supposed to have a cut of the profits but um you know that didn't work out and there was a lawsuit that was settled in 2005 where part of the settlement was he you know gave up his claim to that percentage uh in exchange for a cash payout and um you know, so these movie cameos were not actually the main thing going on in his life by any means. He'd show up on set mm -hmm. for a day, do some lines, always pitch more lines because he wanted to have more dialogue. And then and then he'd leave and go back to this career that was really going nowhere. And in fact, in in very dire straits, he he first had, as you say, Stanley Media, which was this dot com bubble company that he formed with this ex-con, this um a person who had uh, been convicted of felonies on three occasions, a guy named Peter Paul, um, and they were best friends. They, you know, Peter is a whole fascinating character in and of himself, but uh, they formed this company, and long story short, there was a tremendous amount of fraud. There was a crackdown from the federal <laughs> government. There was a collapse of the stock price. It was just this extremely public disaster. And Peter Paul, you know, went to Brazil. He claims for legit reasons. The government and everybody else claims because he was trying to escape. And, um, you know, the it was, again, a very public failure. And um, that people just sort of put in the memory hole afterward if they were fans. But at the time, it, there was you know, you could find out about it pretty easily. Then POW Entertainment happens right afterward with some refugees from Stanley Media, uh, including Stan. And that company was much less explosive. I mean, is, it's still around, but during Stan's lifetime, it was much less, you know, uh, apparent that things weren't going great. Um, and that's because in addition to the cameos, the other thing that Stan was constantly having done to him or doing, however you want to phrase it, was announcements about projects he was doing with POW. There would be these announcements of, you know, we're going to have this new Stan Lee animated movie or we're going to have this Stan Lee, you know, webisodes or we're going to have an, just all these or weird partnerships like a concert series and a cologne and coffee. I mean, there would be all of these partnerships that would get announced or or projects and they would either not get made at all or they would get made and be complete flops and just not register on the radar. There were a few exceptions. Um, you know, he had that graphic memoir that I mentioned, which did pretty well in 2015, although it was just sort of 
a rehashing in many ways of this prose memoir that had been released in, in 2002. Uh, and, you know, there was some anime that he was involved in that was, you know, with big studios. Uh, but, you know, 98% of this stuff really made no impact. And, you know, some of it just barely even existed or didn't exist. Um, and so, yeah, then there's not, it's not even getting into his personal life. In the last right. 20 years of his life, things really spiraled out of control, especially in the final decade um, when it came. Well, I mean, even before that, I mean, like I said, he was best friends with Peter Paul. Peter Paul ends up, you know, getting arrested in a foreign country and they, they had no, they had no relationship after that. So that, that's a huge personal disappointment. And then he has this very difficult relationship with his daughter, a woman named JC, Joan Celia. Um, and you know, there's allegations of physical abuse and emotional abuse. I heard audio tapes of them having horrific, uh, fights, uh, verbal fights where mm -hmm. they're just spewing obscenities at each other. Um, and you know, he was surrounded by this inner circle, especially around the end of people who, uh, you know, pretty much all of them have been accused of some kind of misconduct. Um, when it came to Stan. And it's hard to point fingers and conclusively say, okay, this person did this, this person did that. But you do see the consequences of the abuse he was going through, whether it was one person or another, deliberate or, or inadvertent. You know, by the end of his life, it, he's this really, you know, husk of a man in a lot of ways. And you have footage of him like at Comic-Cons looking completely exhausted as he signs hundreds and hundreds of autographs for 150 bucks a pop. And, you know, there's video footage of one near the end of his life where he's his then associate Kia Morgan is like telling him how to spell his name. I mean, that's how bad it was. Um, and, you know, then then he died. And the last the, like I said, the last year and a half of his life was not triumphant. It was not him going out on top. Um, it really was this weird dichotomy where through that 20 year period, he becomes more famous than he's ever been thanks to the movies. Um, and becomes more miserable than he's ever been because of all these personal and professional failures. Yeah. Um, that's a bummer. That's a bummer. I know. Man. I feel <laughs> when I wrote the book, um, you know, I got to the end of the 10th chapter, the final chapter and expected that I was going to write an epilogue to kind of, you know, give you an update on stuff that happened after he died, but also to kind of soften the blow a little bit. Um, because the story of his, his final days is, is so brutal and I got to the end of chapter 10, started writing the epilogue, and then just went, you know what? I don't I, I don't want to sugarcoat this. I don't want people yeah. to walk away from this book going, well, I'm comfortable with what Stan did and what happened to him. I want people to be agitated and upset and therefore really engage with it as opposed to just going, well, that was a nice read. Um, so, yeah, I, I it is a bummer at the end, and I, I hope that's – not a demerit. I, I think it's important to acknowledge that final chapters are often very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, like I said, I, I thought that I, I, I want to strongly recommend the book to people. Thank you. Uh, if you're interested in, in Stanley as a, as a man and as a creative figure, I do think it's, I think it's, I think it's an important, uh, document Thank you. for, for people to read and, and, Absorb. Um, I, you you mentioned that you have been getting pushback from people. Uh, is this is this the this is the dark side of fandom that that I don't know about you know, dark Stan side. You know, cultivate. it hasn't it, nothing legitimately scary has happened. Um, I've been extremely lucky and gratified that um, people have mostly the people who actually read the book for the most part, at least 
in terms of the people who speak publicly about it say, oh, this wasn't the hatchet job that maybe I worried it would be. Because I had no in interest in writing a book that is just this expose that tears down a public figure. Um, a, because that's just sort of cheap, and B, because it's boring. You know, I, I had a conversation with uh, Peter Guralnik, who's this tremendous arts historian and journalist who, you know, wrote this definitive two-volume biography of Elvis through what they call Jewish geography. I'm Jewish, he's Jewish, my dad went to Jewish summer camp with him, so I had a connection with him. And uh, I shot him an email and said, can I just bounce some ideas off of you because now I'm writing an arts biography. And he said, sure. We had this great conversation where... He said, you know, I told, laid out what I had going uh, in the research, and he said, your challenge here is to not write an expose, but rather say, what was the story of that Stan was telling through his lies? You know, what was, what was, the, what was he trying to convey? As opposed to just saying, here was a lie, you have to try and contextualize it and say, here's likely why he was lying, or here's the impact of that lie. Mm -hmm. As opposed to just saying, screw this guy. I, I didn't want to do that. So there has been pushback. Uh, mostly it seems to be from people who have not read the book. Um, that doesn't mean there's nobody who's pushed back. I mean, you know, yesterday, I believe it was yesterday, everything's a blur. Um, Roy Thomas, who was Stan's in many ways protege and his successor as editor-in-chief at Marvel, uh, and also another Stan biographer. He wrote this um, this big oversized coffee table book biography of Stan a few years ago. You know, he wrote this article for this editorial for The Hollywood Reporter where he really took issue with my uh, portrayal of the Stan-Jack relationship and the balance of who was creating what. But even there, um, you know, he didn't really take any issue with the facts. Uh, it was just mm -hmm. my, my you know, rather like of the whole book, he, you know, it was like 95% him saying, you know, Reisman knows what he's doing, but then the stuff that he was focusing on for the majority of the article is is him talking about this this portion that he thinks was unfair. Um, and you know, Tom Brevoort, the big guy at Marvel now, uh, wrote a Twitter thread where he was saying he disagreed with that perspective. But again, he had no issue with the facts, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know, that's just sort of what I hope people will take away is even if they disagree with this or that interpretation, I just want to make sure that people know I did my best to back up everything I say and, you know, not try and just destroy somebody. And I don't know that it's the dark side of fandom. It's just certainly a consequence of the fact that people really like to, you know, whether they're doing it uh, consciously or not, they tend to put the celebrities they like up on a pedestal. And I, I've said it a million times in interviews, but I stand by it. Part of the point of this book is to say there are no superheroes. I mean, we, we, there's nobody who's, who's perfect and does only good and is purely inspiring. It, it, that sounds so like a truism. And yet people mm -hmm. don't want to live that way. They don't want to accept that the people they love in public life are oftentimes disappointing or or malicious or fallible or greedy, whatever. And I'm not saying Stan was all of those things necessarily, although, you know, I'll let you come to your own conclusions, but people just don't want to live in a world where Stan is not their their real life superhero and it's it's hard to let go of that and i get that i wrote from a place of respecting that not agreeing with it but respecting that that's how people feel and it's not my job to just sort of thumb my nose at them and say how you know you guys are idiots that's not how i perceive it
Yeah. Uh, well, this is great. I really appreciate you being on. I always like to ask my guests mm-hmm. uh, before I sign off if there's anything I should have asked, if there's anything <laughs> you want to, the people to know about um, uh, Stanley you know, or the, the world of comics. The thing that I ended up finding most interesting during the research and about which there really hadn't been anything written or, or even really researched was Stan's uh, genealogical and family background. Um, like I said, I'm Jewish and I write a lot about Jewish topics and think a lot about them. And, um, you know, investigating his relationship with his family and their background in Romania and in New York, uh, which is all very infused with Jewishness. And, you know, neither of his parents were really assimilationists. They remained proudly Jewish. They were not religiously observant all that much, although they were to a certain degree. Uh, but, you know, his dad was very fiercely proud of being Jewish, uh, was a big Zionist, was just, you know, and really... One of the most fascinating things I learned was while talking to Stan's brother, Larry Lieber, who was a key source, and I spoke to him for like Mm -hmm. five hours over the course of a few interviews, uh, gave me so much stuff. You know, Larry talked about these letters that their father, Jack, would would write to them, and especially Stan, after they, you know, and especially Stan, had some degree of professional success. And those letters would be, you're not doing enough for the Jews. You know, you're not supporting Jewish causes. You're not part of the community. You're not celebrating the holidays. You're not supporting the state of Israel. It was a deep disappointment that was then compounded or maybe previously compounded by the fact that, um, you know, Stan married a a Gentile. Stan married an Episcopalian English woman and they had their daughter, their only surviving daughter, baptized. And those things just infuriated Jack and they had a very Mm. difficult relationship. And I could talk about that all day and I I guess I have in the past, but um, that was something that I guess I'm saying that because if you are not interested in comics – don't know anything about Stan Lee, but you are somebody who's interested in Jewish history and the way American Jews have lived their lives. Um, I, I think there's stuff in there for you. Um, and, and just in general, I think, you know, you said it's, it's essential reading if you're into Stan or interested about Stan. And um, that's very, thank you. I, I would just hope that listeners who don't have any particular interest in Stan or comic books or Marvel might uh, give it a shot too. I, I very much wrote it for a lay audience. It is not a book mm-hmm. that gets yeah. into stuff without explaining it when it comes to comics. So that, that's a good question yep. to ask about the non-asked <laughs> questions. Um, I it's it's a good. I, I I recommend all all interviewers use it. Yeah, you I, I sh- interesting stuff like this. I, I often do it, and sometimes it's it just leads to the worst they can say is no. I haven't thought of anything. <laughs> you know, you did great. Uh, yeah. But best case scenario, there's something that you just didn't think to. And there it is. Yeah. Great. Uh, well, thank you very much for being on the show. Dude, uh, thank you. This is a- Abraham Reisman. His book is True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. Uh, it's available at Amazon and local bookstores if you happen to live near a local bookstore still. Yeah, Lucky right. you. Or bookshop.org, <laughs> which helps local bookstores. You know, whatever. There's a lot of options out there. AbrahamReisman.com if you want to find out more about the book or my past work. And it's I before E in Reisman. Excellent. Uh, Thank you very much for being on the show, uh, and we will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. (laughs) 